Welcome to the Rural Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Larson. Today we're talking with Nevada Miller of Nevada Watt Brand in French Glen, Oregon. Nevada creates eclectic silver jewelry that incorporates traditional Western design with cultural elements all on her ranch in Oregon. She's talking with us today about what it was like growing up in an artistic entrepreneurial family, how she developed her own style, why she shares her craft with others, and how she balances her work with ranch life. She also shares some encouragement for other makers who are living in remote rural areas. So here we go with Nevada Miller. Okay, well, we're here today with Nevada Miller of the Nevada Watt brand from French Glen, Oregon. Nevada, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Me too. Tell us a little bit about you. Are you born and raised in Oregon? No, actually. So um, I was actually born and raised in Central California. Um, Kalinga is the name of the town. So it's pretty much halfway between LA and San Francisco. And then I went to school in Bozeman, Montana, and that's where I met my husband, Levi. And then I moved down to French Glen, Oregon, who we Googled it again this morning. Google says there's 12 people, but there's actually only six full-time residents. And then there's <laughs> a couple people that come in every once in a while. So yeah, it's actually even smaller than what Google says. 12 kind of relative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, it's they're very, rounding very up. small. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe you couldn't put six people on Google. I don't know if they would even recognize it. I don't know. <laughs> would you say that you grew up in an artistic family? Yes, definitely. So my dad was a saddle maker or is a saddle maker and a bit and spur maker. Um, so my mom and dad, we've had a home business all of my life. So grown up around it, but I never started doing any kind of silver work or making anything till I was a junior in high school. Um, and then I did a little bit in college and then did it full time for two years before we got married. And then now as much as time allows. So definitely grew up in an artistic family. My dad is, I would consider a Renaissance man. He does all kinds of things. Um, he went through a fruit carving stage. I mean, my God, like pretty much anything that you can make artistic, he'll do. So definitely a artistic family. That's great. <laughs> so was silversmithing something you always wanted to get into? You know, to be honest, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. Um, my parents were really, really awesome. They never, ever pushed me or my brother. I have an older brother to do any of the trades that they did. It was never something that they just required of us. It was something that was natural. And that if we wanted to get into it, that we were encouraged to do that. Now, from day one, we were always taught to be very hard workers, to make things for ourselves and be little capitalists. So that was definitely part of my upbringing. Um, I just remember one day in high school, I was like, okay, I do want to try this. So I want to start engraving. And then from there, it just kind of grew when I got way more into it. And yeah, I wouldn't say that I always wanted to do it. And in college, I did nothing that went with artists. Um, I had actually an exercise science major and a minor in business. So nothing artistic at all. And then I decided that I didn't want to be a physical therapist after college and live in rural America and become a silversmith. So yeah. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How would you describe your style? Ooh, um, I think it's kind of changed over the years. So when I first started doing any kind of silver work and jewelry, um, I was actually making a little bit more horse gear. So conchos and stuff like that more than I was jewelry. And I've kind of morphed into making more and more jewelry as the years have gone. 
I will say, I think in the last couple of years, I've tried to make things that are a little bit more functional. Um, just so something that I can wear in my daily life. So we live and work on a ranch. I live in the middle of nowhere and no one ever usually sees me. So if I can't wear it and get joy from wearing it when no one else sees it, it's kind of no point to me. So a lot of my stuff is something you can wear while you're working. You can wear while just doing life. I do make some pieces that are a little bit off the wall that I really enjoy. I would say it's moved from a little bit more eclectic to a little bit more functional while being Western and drawing influence from a bunch of different cultures. So still eclectic, but a little bit more functional, I would say. Yeah. Have you had some good mentors along the way? Oh, definitely. So I credit pretty much everything I know to my father. Um, I have taken classes from quite a few different people, but I would definitely say that my dad was my biggest influence on how I make things. He's always pushed the boundaries on style and ways of doing things and always never being afraid to try something new. So I would say that my dad's my biggest mentor for sure. And then just been really, really, really um, blessed to have some people in my life that would share a lot of knowledge with me. And we grow or we grew up in a age that everyone was really willing to share. And that wasn't the case even 20 years ago. So we're really lucky right now. Yeah. Wow. So once you decided to pursue silversmithing, how did you learn the trade? I mean, was it, was it just through your dad? Did you study other people? Um, And then, you know, how did you get the word out once you're like, I have things to sell? (laughs) So I think, I mean, I was definitely had a step ahead just because of my family and who they are in the Western industry. Um, So I kind of had a bit of a name when I first started, which helped definitely sell things. So I was really blessed in that um, and always just making stuff from early on, not necessarily just being around the family business that helped um, people know who I was. So definitely my dad was, you know, the biggest person that helped me, but he also hates making jewelry. So when I started making more jewelry, it was more just kind of learned by trial and error. Um, I've never actually taken any classes from anyone that's a classic jeweler, I would say. So there are a lot of things that I do were actually more geared toward how like the Western industry does it and not as much how like classic jewelers do something. Um, and then, yeah, I think it really helped me. So my big thing was, after we graduated college, I wanted to move to French Glen, Oregon. And before we got married, live by myself and work on my business for two years. It just so happened to be two years before Levi asked me to marry him. But <laughs> um, that was really important to me just to try to get my foothold doing business in the middle of nowhere because it is quite a lot different. Um, so it's not as dependable on trade shows and things like that as it is on social media, to be honest. So yeah, I just started making things, posting on social media, got a website up and running. And from there, it's kind of just naturally grown. And I do do a few trade shows every year, but that isn't the main thing I honestly would say social media is for where I live. So yeah. Perfect. So in addition to trade shows, you also started the Fusion Silver Show. Yeah, for sure. So the Fusion Silver Show um, was, how many years did I do it? Three years? believe three years. Um, so that was actually part of a event called the Brandeman Pro-Am Roping that was held in Southern California. And during that event, there was like this kind of weird little building that we wanted to do something in. And I've always loved promoting other silversmiths and trying to get their word out about other people and other makers. Um, and so the first year, what did we do? Headstalls. Man, this is a long time ago. I got to think back. 
So the whole premise of Fusion Silver Show was creativity within constraints. And so I wanted to host a show that had a constraint that everyone had to make a functional head stall and then they could go wild within that. So everything was for sale. Um, it was a good way to promote makers. I think I had, I think about 15 head stalls the first year. The second year we did um, a price constraint. So everything had to be $2,500 or below retail price. And then the third year we did hats and hat accessories. So it was a way for me to kind of work my event organizing brain, I guess. I really love organizing events. I love doing that kind of stuff and promotional things. So we did it for three years. Um, and it was just, it was great. I got to meet a lot of different makers. I got to meet makers I've never even heard of before. Um, and we had all ages, all, you know, both genders. We had just a whole bunch of people. So it was a really cool group that we got to be a part of. Um, and then from that show, it morphed into doing two years of a show I called Pint Size, which was a very small scale trade show. So still in the same space, everyone just had a card table size booth. So it was, again, creativity within constraints. But it was great for small makers. Like I have a very hard time making inventory. So it was a way that people could, you know, have a booth in a show, but not be stressed out about making a ridiculous amount of inventory for that said show. So yeah, so I like organizing shows. The Fusion was an awesome, just an awesome, awesome experience and got to meet a lot of cool people. So yeah. Very fun. Well, you believe in the power of sharing your craft so that others can learn how to do what you do. And I think that's something unique and something that sets you apart. What is your heart behind that? Well, I really appreciate that. Um, I do love sharing because I always tell people if a blonde can do it, anybody can do it. So I always <laughs> encourage people to just try anything. I think that a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not creative. And that's I really think a cop out because I think everyone is creative in their own way. If you asked me to draw anything real, I would be stunted. I can draw stick people and scrolls. Like I don't have any, <laughs> any in between there. So I just like to encourage people to just, you know, if it's something you want to do as business or just a hobby, whichever, I really believe that everyone has a place in the maker world. Um, but I also believe that everyone has their place to be their own maker. So I don't believe in sharing for people to copy or emulate. I believe that I'm sharing to give inspiration to people and try to educate maybe an efficient way of doing something. And then they can build on that because everyone has their own style that they can explore if they just learn some basics of how to actually build those things. So yeah, I think the heart from that is my dad's always been a fantastic teacher and he's been really, really passionate about sharing with all kinds of people and always learning himself. And I think some of the biggest lessons I've actually learned is from teaching, um, teaching engraving, teaching drawing, teaching business, anything like that is really, really beneficial for the maker also. So it goes both ways. It's the give and a take. And I just think it's a great, it's a great way to, I think, increase your passion in your craft as well. Well, I think that's amazing. And you have grown this business into, you feature a lot of different products, but there's a, a handful of things that you sell <laughs> that like immediately sell out. Your followers love them. So tell us a little bit about some of the products that you offer. So I think the, the first thing that comes to mind, which is actually really funny is these little rings called maker rings. So they actually started from a mistake. Um, I was making a cuff for a friend of mine for a little girl. She was an infant and hold on. My husband's just leaving. Bye, babe. Love you. <laughs> um, so I was making a cuff for my friend's little girl and I just hated the design. So I literally broke it in half. I remember as 
in my shop. And uh, it wasn't a long enough piece to make a ring all the way around. So I just bent it and soldered on this little half round piece of wire and just stuck it on my thumb. Like I didn't think anything of it, right? Well, then every picture that I took, you know, I don't have a fancy tripod. So everything was just my hand holding the item. And everyone, even if it was the piece in my hand that I was really proud of, everyone's like, oh my God, I love your thumb ring. I love your thumb ring. So finally I started making some and then people kind of went a little nuts over them, which I, I'm, it's a blessing for sure, but it just cracks me up. So I decided to stamp the word maker on the inside because I do believe that we are all makers, um, just some kind of maker. So it doesn't, you don't have to be a silversmith. You know, you can make beds and mac and cheese for your kids. You can make educated minds if you're a teacher. Like we all do make something and give something to the world. So it's just a reminder that we're all makers of something. So be a maker of good. Um, but anyway, so the maker rings are probably the number one seller, which again, is a huge blessing. I'm very thankful to people for liking them. And then just little things. I think the stuff that's become the most popular is something that I wear all the time. So it's something that's easy for a customer to wear. So whether you are working on a ranch or maybe you're a nurse or maybe something like that, something that you can wear every day and appreciate, those seem to be the items that people really, really go towards. So yeah, maker rings, there's these little rings I call the bands that are just little scroll engraved rings and there's nothing crazy about them. I think it's just something that people like sometimes something simple and something that just brings you joy when you look at it. So yeah. Yeah. I love it. Talk about the process of a silversmith, because for those of us who aren't familiar with the trade, I think there's a lot more that goes into it than we realize. Right, right. So I would say the process for a silversmith would, for me, it involves design, fabrication, engraving, and finish work. So a lot of people, not saying anything's wrong or less than, but a lot of people will do more of the fabrication and design side. And then a lot of other people will just do the engraving side and not everyone kind of mixes it all together. And I think that's the most rewarding part. And that's what I try to teach people. If you can use your own designs, make the piece and then embellish that piece with your own creativity, that's kind of like the full circle to me. So I do a lot of things that have Western flair to it, but then I do a lot of things that are inspired by the Navajo silversmith traditions of stamp work and overlays and stonework and that kind of style. So process for me is, you know, it comes from my little head. I draw it down. If it's something that I'm going to be repeating a lot, I will draw it and put it on Adobe Illustrator so I can um, digitize it so it can be more efficient for next time I make that item. Then I just head out to my little shop. It's just me and my dog and we get to cutting and polishing and filing and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we go to the engraving bench and that just is one tiny little scoop of silver. I just call it, it's a silver scooper. I'm pretty much a silver scooper. <laughs> and then once the engraving's done, you know, if I need to shape anything and then finish work, setting stones and then taking some pictures of it. I do wish I had a full-time photographer, but I do not. <laughs> and then, yeah, so I think that's the process. Just designing, actually making it with your hands is really, really rewarding. And yeah. Perfect. Do you do custom pieces? I don't anymore. I used to do custom for many, many years. I say many, many years. I've only been doing it for, I guess, 10 years, which feels like a long time. But I don't do custom work anymore. It just got to the point where... I didn't want people waiting too long for something because ranch work took priority. Sometimes I don't know what is going to happen. So 
my work has become a little bit more seasonal, I would say. I now have got a feel for the ranch and how the different seasons go. So now we can kind of plan around that a little bit better, but it just worked a lot better for me to just make things and sell them as I go. So I no longer do custom work. I enjoyed it a lot. I learned a lot doing custom work, but not anymore. That's okay. Yeah, perfect. What advice would you have for entrepreneurs? Because I think it's cool that you were raised in a very entrepreneurial minded family and then you get to do that too, both you and your husband. So uh, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs who have ideas of things they might want to do or who maybe, maybe this is more of like a side gig that's part of a bigger thing that, you know, they're doing in their life? Advice. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, yes, again, I was very blessed to be raised in a family that entrepreneurial skills were valued. My dad was also a very big pusher of if you can't make money at it, then you can't, you know, do it for another day. So I always tell people that no one's going to value your work if you don't. So you should not ever feel guilty for asking for a, an exchange of value for an item. That's all that a price is. That's all that a dollar sign is is just just an exchange of value and some people are going to recognize that value and other people are not and that's that's completely okay um i'm very big on the business aspects i'm very big on pricing your work so you can make money um i don't believe in sales <laughs> um that's just my personal opinion i believe in selling a piece for its full price or giving it away completely so if i have something that god tells me you know you need to give that piece to that person i just will and that's completely fine. That's just my little mindset on it. Um, advice for business people in a nutshell, definitely value your work and don't feel guilty about asking a price for it. Um, encourage others, but be strong in your business practices and get a handle on your money right away. Um, there's a book that I always tell people about. It's called profit first. I know we're kind of going off on a tangent now, but it's honestly, that book has changed my business probably more than anything else has. Um, and you can make, you can make a good living doing these kind of things, but a lot of people have the excuse, Oh, I'm a maker. I'm a creative. So I, I don't know how to, you know, I don't handle money. I don't do numbers and I don't, I don't love doing it either, but it's something you have to learn to do because it will make you better and actually be able to help you do this for many, many years to come. So handle your money and value your time and your work. (laughs) So good. So good. Any words of wisdom for makers and creators out there who are listening? I would like to say, I think in the last year and a half, I would encourage any maker out there to definitely find that creative vision that only you have. And it's a very fine line between inspiration and copying. And I would just encourage any kind of maker to really just lean into what you have inside of you because you have something special that I believe God gave everyone. And it's very, very important to bring that out into the world in your own way. So learn from people, but then really tap into what is personally, personally creative to you. I think that's just one note of encouragement. I like to tell someone because I think the Western industry itself is pretty small and it can be kind of overrun with the same designs very quickly. So find those items, just lean into that. It might seem weird and wacky, but there is someone out there that will love it. And it is important that you bring it out. That's so good. What has been the most rewarding part of your business? Ooh, 
man, that's a t- I think getting to encourage people that live in kind of the same setting as me, that they can actually create a viable business and do something that they love that brings joy to other people. So I live an hour and a half from town. Um, French Glen is the nearest town, but it's still 20 miles away. And like I said, there's six people in it. So if you can call it a town, cool. Um, so it's something that I can do while ranching in the middle of nowhere that brings my own creativity to life and fuels that while being able to support me and will not support wholly, but support me and my husband and some of our dreams and be part of the ranching life. I think that's just the most rewarding thing. And there's a lot of people that do it and just encouraging them that they can actually make this happen for themselves as well. So taking advantage of all those things we cuss in the 21st century, like social media, because sometimes it's a pain in the butt, but (laughs) it does allow for some dreams to be made for sure. Absolutely. What has been the most challenging besides maybe like rural internet? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Rural internet is a pain in the butt. I just actually, (laughs) me and my husband bought a fancy new TV and we can't use it because we don't have enough internet yet. So right now it's just a black box on the wall. So that's (laughs) fun. But (laughs) um, the most challenging, I think finding a time balance because when we got married and my husband, I told him that the ranch was going to become first priority. That was important to me. That was something that I valued. And so trying to find times, you know, to go out and help him and then also make that time to be in my shop. So I think that efficiency and time balance have been the most challenging. I get, to be honest, more done now than I ever did when I was doing it full-time by myself, unmarried in French Glen. And I think that just comes, excuse me, with, learning how to be more efficient because I might only have two hours in the shop right now. So I've got to get these certain things done right now. Like I don't get to procrastinate as much as I used to. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I still procrastinate. I'm a human, but (laughs) I think, yeah, efficiency and time balance. That's, that's the biggest one. Yeah. Tell us about French Glen and what inspired your move there. (laughs) <laughs> well, my, my husband, definitely. I'd never heard of French Glen before. Um, it's really funny. It is famous for bird watching, which is super nerdy, but pretty much all middle-aged bird watchers come to French Glen. Um, so yeah, it's a very, very tiny town in Southeastern Oregon. Um, it was actually founded by a cattle baron from Northern California, who the guy that ran his cows came over and his name was Peter French. And the guy that owned the cows was named Hugh Glenn. So French Glenn, that's where it came from. But they built like a hotel back in 1918 that is still there, still operating. And that was for cattle buyers when they would come to French Glen to buy cows from Hugh Glenn, they would stay in this hotel. So it is, like I said, still in operation, which is pretty cool. And I actually worked at the hotel for one summer, a few summers back. So yeah, middle of nowhere. Um, we live at the base of the Steens Mountains, which are absolutely gorgeous. I like to run as well. So I run in the Steens all the time. And yeah, it's really funny. You wouldn't think that there'd be that many people out here, but honestly, especially during quarantine, oh my God, there are so many people. <laughs> Grant, it's relative, right? It's not like yeah. I live in downtown San Francisco, but for us, it was a lot of people. So lots of sagebrush, um, high desert, very, very dry. Um, a few junipers in the hills and it's just, it's cattle country. It's just big ranching country. It's wide open and yeah, that's what French Glen's like. Sounds pretty. All right. Uh, (laughs) What excites you most about the future of rural America? 
Oh, that's a good question. I think that there's definitely a resurgence of makers, of people that grow their own food, of people that appreciate the Western lifestyle. I say Western loosely because I do believe that rural America, you know, is across obviously all of America. I just say Western because that's kind of what I know and am immersed in. Um, but just seeing how many people, young people want to learn how to make stuff, um, young people that are interested in ranching that are interested like in farming and do the whole hobby farm thing. And then that becomes something bigger. So I have a lot of faith actually in this generation for bringing back some of those things. It's, it's become really trendy and really cool to be like a homesteader now, which just cracks me up. So I have a lot of faith (laughs) in rural America. I just hope that we can pass on some of the skills and the knowledge that the generations before us knew that maybe have got lost for a while. So yeah, that's what excites me the most. Perfect. Well, what's next for you and for Nevada Watt brand? What's next? So I have been really enjoying teaching. I've been teaching a lot more. Um, This year, you know, everything kind of shut down and stopped. However, I am looking towards some different ways to bring virtual teaching and classes to people online. So that's definitely coming next. And then I would just say, keep, I'm just still going to be keeping building stuff. Um, Next year, my plan is I want to run a hundred miler race, which doesn't really have anything to do with silversmithing. However, after that, I would like to probably start a family. So probably it's going to be more silver work classes. And then me and Levi are hopefully going to be starting a family. So I guess motherhood, which is a huge thing. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> still, exciting. A, still a while away, but yeah, I think just keep making stuff. And, um, I do one of my big projects I would like to get made before Christmas this year is a phases of the moon concho belt, something I've wanted to do for a long time. So stay tuned if you like phases of the moon and you like concho belts. So there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Do you have a release date set yet? Oh, no. As soon as I get it made. Okay. All right. No pressure. (laughs) I would like to have it done before Christmas. And yeah, so we'll see how that goes. Okay. Well, how do we follow along with you and everything you have going on? So Instagram is definitely the best way. Um, I post anything new on Instagram. I do a lot on stories, all that kind of stuff. I do share to Facebook, but I am not active on Facebook at all. So if you ever message me or any, or even message me on Instagram, that's not the best way to get a hold of me. Just send me an email. That's all on my website. You can find my email and all that kind of stuff. But Instagram is the most active platform. And yeah, then I just have a website, madawatt.com. And that's pretty much it. Because I always tell people, if you find me out here in French Glen, you're more than welcome to come see me, but no one ever wants to come out this far. So Instagram's the best. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Nevada. This has been great. I've been a longtime admirer of your work. So um, it's great to finally get to chat with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. And if anyone has any questions, please feel free to email me. That information's on my website. And yeah, if there's anything else out there that people just need inspiration in rural America, I have no problem giving advice. So please just send me an email and we'll do this journey together. Perfect. And I am just going to give a little plug for your email list because you do send out emails teaching people (laughs) how to do what you do. And I think that's great. So we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I love how Nevada wants to see other makers succeed and how she champions others to find their own place in the maker world. Be sure to hit up the show notes where you can check out Nevada's work and sign up for her Maker's Mail, 
where she shares about everything from how to price your work to the everyday tools she uses. I trust that you're super inspired from today's episode and probably have a handful of people you know would love to hear it. So go ahead and text them the link and leave us a kind review while you're at it so we can keep spreading the Rural Revival message far and wide. And stay tuned in with us on Instagram and Facebook at Rural Revival Co. to keep updated on this podcast and all things Rural Revival related. And we'll catch you next time on the Rural Revival Podcast. Have a great day, everybody.